Do you trust yourself? I mean, really trust yourself. My guest today talked with me about how she believes we are all born with an incredible ability to connect to our instincts and intuition, but as we get older, we seem to unlearn that. In her work, Abby Malik teaches people how to trust themselves again so they realize that they have everything they need inside of them already. It's about learning the skills to have a better relationship with yourself. And when we are more in tune with our gut feelings, we make a strong connection to our humanity. And of course, as a result, we get to model it for our students and have deeper connections with the people around us. So after the show, make sure you download your copy of my ebook, 24 Ways to Find Calm in Your Busy World, which is free for podcast listeners at empowerededucator.com slash ebook. And here you'll find 24 ways to feel more ease and more joy by noticing the things that are around you already all of the time that are usually out of sight. I found them all for you, did all the work for you, and it is yours for free. So download your copy today at empowerededucator.com slash ebook. Remember all the passion and vision you had when you first went into teaching? Feeling like building young minds and creating community through your work would make a lasting impact on this world? Well, those days may feel like they're behind you now because you're exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed and frustrated, but I'm here to tell you it doesn't have to be like this. In fact, the love of teaching never really went away, but it absolutely needs transformation. Welcome to the Take Notes Podcast. I'm Jen Rafferty, former music teacher, mom of two, and certified emotional intelligence practitioner, and I'm here to light the way for you. In order to create a generational change for our kids, we need to shift the paradigm away from the perpetual stress and overwhelm and into a life of joy and fulfillment. This is Education 2.0, where you become the priority, shift how you live your life, and how you show up both at work and at home. So take a sip of steamy morning coffee and grab your notebook. It's time to take notes. Hello, and welcome back to another fantastic episode of Take Notes. I have a very special guest with me today. She is a researcher, social worker, and personal development coach in Austin, Texas. She teaches research-based self-coaching tools to individuals and groups so they can heal self-doubt and self-sabotaging beliefs. Abby Malik, welcome to Take Notes. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jen. I'm so excited to be here. I would love for you to share how you came into this work, because some of the things that got me really excited about learning what you do in the world is teaching people how to self-coach is really important because I think a lot of times we have this idea that we need to always depend on someone else to help us, but we really have all the tools we need within ourselves. And in coaching people to self-coach themselves, you really empower people to do that. So I'd love to know how you came to even start this work and this journey in this world. Yeah, absolutely. A little background on me. I started out as a public school elementary teacher. I taught bilingual kinder and first grade here in Austin, Texas. But then I fell in love with research and I moved into social work where I was working with young people with trauma history and substance abuse. And I loved that job and trying to advocate for kids because unfortunately, a lot of treatment centers and schools and juvenile court systems are not functioning in a way that's in line with current research when it comes to helping our most vulnerable kids. A lot of places are using old, old methodologies for kids and teens from the 80s that have 
plenty of racism and classism showing. So I had to fight hard to say, hey, let's try a different treatment plan that's based on actual current data. And then eventually I got a master's of science in social work because I wanted to do more research. And I got really into happiness research and positive psychology and what is actually good for people and what are the ways that our current society functions that is not that great for human brains and how they actually work. So right now I am still a researcher and also a personal development coach. Now I'm working with adults on replacing unhealthy coping skills that no longer serve them and having better relationships with themselves and others. And as you said, a lot of that is through self-coaching tools, through learning these skills to say, okay, here's this pattern that I have. Let me figure out how I developed that and why has it served me in the past? Is it serving me now? And it's really fun, exciting work. You know, everyone's journey is different, so it never gets boring. It's the best work. I couldn't agree more. And I want to put a pin in the learned skills for a second because that's important. I want to get back to it. But something that just gets to me is these organizational structures that exist are using outdated information. And the current data is out there. The research is happening. There are researchers actively creating studies to provide qualitative and quantitative data for people to use and make policy, but they're just not. (laughs) Which is, I think, what makes the work that you do in the world, the work that I do in this world, so important because we are looking at the most recent information and that's what's informing our practices, which can hopefully inform other practices. And I'm just always amazed by how outdated everything is. Yes, absolutely. And especially when you look at some of our current crises in education, you have teachers burning out or quiet quitting or just actual quitting in droves. And we have all this research on what's best for workers and how to help people avoid burnout. And schools are not using that research to treat teachers like whole human beings. Right. And then, of course, that filters down to the kids who see all of the things that are happening around them. And then it just perpetuates this cycle. But we break the cycle by doing what you said of teaching these skills. And I think it's important, and I want to highlight you said, these are skills that we need to learn. Sometimes we come to this work and we think, well, shouldn't we just know this already? No, (laughs) we're not born knowing that we're not our thoughts. We're not born knowing how to process through our emotions. These are things we have to learn. So what are some of the processes or strategies that you guide your clients through as they're first coming to this work? So I think that's interesting that you say there's a lot of skills that we're not born knowing. And that's very true. There's a lot of social emotional skills and self-advocacy and healthy communication skills that can and should be taught. But also this aspect of self-trust that I really talk about is something that I think in many ways we are born knowing and our society and our culture kind of does a lot of things to chip away at that self-trust. And particularly in professional settings where you're supposed to be completely unemotional at work 
And you're not supposed to be seen as showing weakness or showing too much of your personality. You're just supposed to go along with the motions because that's what we consider professional. And especially for women, for queer folks, for people of color, people with disabilities, there's a genuine concern about being seen as overly emotional work for just advocating for their needs. So there's a lot of pressure to not be emotional and not kind of show your humanity at work. And that's really unhealthy for us in the long term and is part of what's leading to a lot of this burnout. Oh, I totally agree. It's interesting that you said that because just yesterday I was doing a workshop and with teachers and we started getting into feelings and one of them said, you know, I feel like I'm in therapy right now. And we kind of had a moment of, isn't that interesting? Because we have been taught that the only spaces that are appropriate to talk about our emotions are once a week, twice a week with a therapist where here we are in this space trying to normalize our humanity, normalize talking about emotions, because that's part of how we exist in this world, that it is something to be celebrated and honored and is a strength that we have. Exactly, exactly. And that's also how you end up building relationships and building coalitions and making big changes to the system is by sharing your emotions, sharing your struggles and your triumphs with other teachers and other people in the educational community so that you don't feel like you're isolated and you're this lone crazy person who's not able to do this impossible job of working in underfunded schools and advocating for yourself and advocating for your students all alone. When you do share and get vulnerable, that's how people start connecting and start saying, oh, we're all in this situation together and we can build some changes together. Yeah, that's where the magic happens. It's very powerful. And when we deny that, it actually perpetuates problems. Yes. So interesting. So I want to get back to what you said about self-trust, because as you were talking, I was picturing my own two kids, right? When they're little, when we're all little, that's all we have is self-trust. That's all we know. We follow our instincts. We follow our intuitions. Our emotions are what guide us. And we are taught not to trust ourselves as we get older. And coming back to this self-trust can really be a game changer for how everyone shows up in the world. So how do we start even approaching this idea of trusting ourselves when we have been taught explicitly and implicitly that we really can't? Yeah, that's such an important question. And I think it starts with just looking at investigating how did you lose your self-trust? And I think with for people who have kids and who work with kids, they definitely see that they see some of the ways that self-trust gets eroded either through pressure to conform, peer pressure, bullying. You see it through the way people talk to kids about not showing certain emotions, you know, which is oftentimes gendered. Oftentimes boys are told not to show sadness, weakness, vulnerability. Girls are told oftentimes to not show anger, not be too confrontational, not upset anyone. And you see kids, especially little kids like toddlers, they're very comfortable saying when they're tired, when they're grumpy, when they're overwhelmed, they show it. They're big. You can't not notice when a toddler is overwhelmed and wants to go home. But we slowly start teaching our kids 
No, you have to stay in this situation, even though you'd rather be doing something else. You have to be polite to this person, even hug this person, even if they make you uncomfortable. So I think that for adults, looking back at your own childhood, how did your parents talk about emotion? How did your parents talk about rest and taking breaks or working hard or whether it's earning food or earning playtime or earning a vacation? And look at how did you build those ideas about whether or not it's okay to show certain emotions, whether or not it's okay to rest and listen to your body when you need to. And I think that listening to your body piece is really the gateway to all of that because we can feel what's happening in our body. You know, when you're in a situation and you are being asked or expected to do something, or even if it's in your own head and you feel like you should be doing this or should be doing that, but there's some disconnect with your body, you feel that dip in your emotion and your energy, that not in your stomach. That's like something about this doesn't align. But more often than not, people who aren't familiar with this work yet push that aside and just do the thing anyway without really acknowledging or recognizing something's not quite right here. This doesn't feel right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's kind of where you get to the next step. That first step is looking back at how did I lose my trust in my body and in my natural right to rest and experience joy. And then after you've done that kind of examination of the past, looking at your life now and really thinking about what emotions do I feel at different parts of my day? What parts of my day energize me or drain me? Who are the people who lift me up? Where are the places where I can be vulnerable and open and honest? And if there aren't a lot of those places, especially at work, try to kind of build those places, find your community, find your people. Sure. I'm trying to think of just a really good example here. Can we take this through some sort of example either like perfectionism or people pleasing or something that we can kind of walk people through. Here's how this could have gone down and here's how it presents right now in your life. Yeah, absolutely. People pleasing is a great one because I think that teaching is very female dominated. A lot of women struggle with self-advocacy and being open and honest about their feelings and their experiences when it can create a conflict or make people uncomfortable. So say you have someone who acknowledges that they have a lot of trouble having healthy conflict. They tend to people please or to avoid conflict, smooth things over. So first of all is look at the family you grew up in, look at the culture you grew up in and try to figure out where did that people pleasing habit come from? Was it from watching adults around you and kind of passively learning? Was it from things adults specifically told you about how you were expected to act? Was it how people reacted when you did try to set boundaries as a kid or speak about your feelings? So once you've looked at that, then look at your current life. Are there places in your life where you can have healthy conflict? Are there certain relationships where you can be more open even if it's uncomfortable and difficult. So kind of looking at where is it worse? Where is it better? And are there places in your life where you can 
slowly in a way that feels comfortable for you work on healthy conflict and healthy confrontation. So for some people, it might start with the people who are closest to them, who know them and feel safe. For others, it might feel better to start with strangers, with people they don't know very well. For some people, it's easier to start with your personal life. For others, it's easier to start at work. But try to figure out where are the places where I am being drained or not being able to be my authentic self or not being able to advocate for myself or my students or my coworkers? And what are some small things that I can do there to just gently take those small steps? Yeah, we're kind of looking at our lives through the lens of investigation and curiosity so we can uncover some of these things so we can make different choices that lead us to a place of authenticity. Exactly. I love the way you phrase that because there's so much shame around these different patterns too, whether it's people-pleasing, perfectionism, procrastination. There's this idea of like, oh, there's just this thing wrong with me and I'm just a screw up and I need to fix all these things because I don't have good relationships and I'm not happy. But part of that self-investigation is really removing the shame, right? You learned these patterns for a reason. And there was probably at some point when these patterns were helpful to you and made sense in your life, right? If you grew up in a family that where you weren't able to express yourself, where you weren't able to have healthy conflict, it makes sense that you developed some people-pleasing patterns. So be gentle with yourself. And then moving slowly and gently and acknowledging that changing these old patterns is going to be emotionally draining, especially at first, that's really important too. Because another part of our wellness culture is kind of glorifying these huge breakthroughs. But the truth is that breakthroughs happen with lots of small steps generally and not in these huge leaps and bounds. A hundred percent. And first of all, I want to go back and highlight what you said. We're not broken. (laughs) Nobody's broken here. We are products of our upbringing, which is nobody's fault because our parents are products of their upbringing and so on and so forth. So this is our wiring. And when we do this investigation, we get to uncover where the wiring came from. So then we can make these changes. And like you said, for me, the amount of change that has happened for me personally in the last two and a half years is unreal. And in doing all of those many steps to reiterate myself and reiterate myself and reinvent myself and recreate new things, it didn't always feel good because this work is sometimes painful. But when you zoom out and you understand that in going deep, you get to go high, you get to grow, all of those emotions that you experience become part of this beautiful journey of growth and expansion, which is kind of the whole idea about our humanity and being here. Because if we're not growing and expanding and learning, then like, what's the point? Yes, exactly. That's so important to remember. Because if you're used to not advocating for yourself and not standing up when you see something wrong, and then you start to do it, 
you might imagine, oh, it's going to feel so good to be my authentic self. And yes, it totally will eventually, but many steps along the way will be exhausting and hard and you'll need to kind of emotionally recover from that. And even when we talk about perfectionism and overwork and this glorification of not getting enough rest and working all the time, if that's something that you know you kind of learned those ideals growing up and you want to work on it and you want to have more rest and more joy in your life, at first it might not feel good, right? It might not feel good to stop checking emails after 5 p.m. if that's not what you're used to. It might not feel good to say, okay, I'm not going to do any work this weekend. It might be hard on your nervous system to adjust to a new pattern. And that's okay. That's a normal part of the process. Yes. And leaning into that process, knowing that's just part of our biology of how we rewire, your brain desperately wants you to stay the same. (laughs) So anything that you're going to try to do differently, you're going to get some resistance. And in my experience, the smarter you are, the smarter your resistance is. It'll come up in all sorts of sneaky ways. Yes, your brain loves habits and patterns and routines, which is why even if it's not good for you, even if it's exhausting for you, even if you're burnt out, I absolutely did that when I went from teaching in an underfunded public school and I was working all the time and I thought, okay, I got to try something else. And I went into research and social work and I was doing the exact same thing. And that's part of the reason why we start slow, because in order to rewire your brain, you have to create those pathways first and then strengthen those pathways. If you just go really big, really hard all at once, you won't have a path to travel. You're right. And then it's self-sabotage. Exactly. Right. So I want to ask you about something that's on your website, because you said what you do is coaching based in neuroscience and informed by justice. And I love that tagline because as a fellow neuroscience nerd, I'm like, yes. And then I would just love for you to expand a little bit about what does that look like for you? Because it's so powerful. That is such a great question, Jen. Thank you for asking, because I do think that when we're looking at self-trust and healing and growth, we absolutely have to have a justice-informed focus and a systems-informed focus because we live in a culture, we live in a society, and everything that all these habits we've learned, all these expectations on your life, the things you're told that you're supposed to want, that comes from the culture that is all around you. So when we're working on healing and growing, it's not something that you necessarily need to do completely alone. There are some things like journaling and meditation that are wonderful practices for healing and growth, but we are social creatures. We need community. We need to find people that we can heal with and process our emotions with. And it's not a coincidence that having community building relationships is good for your immune system. It's good for your nervous system. It's good for keeping your brain from getting overwhelmed and it protects you from burnout during times of stress. So I think that working on healing and growth from a justice-informed space means looking at how your growth 
happens in a community and how it's impacted by the systems around you and how you can positively impact the systems around you through your healing and growth. That's tremendous. And I think that's one of the most important pieces. When we look outward, it's so easy to point fingers about who's to blame and what's wrong. But until we point the fingers at ourselves, (laughs) we're not actually able to make any of those changes externally. And I love this idea of the lens of justice. You know, we hear a lot trauma-informed lenses and safety lenses and neuroscience lens. But this idea of justice is, I think, really profound because we don't exist in a vacuum. We developed our belief systems and these ideas about how we are supposed to operate in this world because, like you said, the communities and cultures which we came from. And without acknowledging that, those greater systems that we live in, we're missing a piece. And so I think that's really profound. Yeah. When you work on yourself, when you advocate for yourself, you're giving other people permission to do that as well. And when you get together and advocate in a community, that's how cultures change. That's how these unhealthy norms, whether it's work norms or social norms, end up changing is not through individual work, but through individuals talking about their collective traumas and collective stressors and working together. That's beautiful. And that is really how we create change in this world. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We get our trauma and our unhealthy coping skills from family, from community, from other humans. And we heal and grow in community and with other humans and for other humans. Yes, yes, yes. So if there's someone listening right now and they're like, all right, Abby, like I'm picking up what you're putting down. Where do I start? What's one thing that you can share today that can maybe make a difference in someone as they're first approaching this kind of work? Remember that you are not alone and it's not your fault, but there is something you can do about it, right? If you have these unhealthy patterns or coping skills or relational skills that you're just really frustrated about and you have shame about, remember that these came up for a reason, that they may have been protecting you at some point or helpful at some point. And that is really, I think, one of the big keys to eliminating shame. And then the other one, as I said before, is finding other people who are dealing with the same issues. Find the other recovering people pleasers, the other recovering workaholics, the other burnt out teachers and share with them and be vulnerable and talk about how it's not okay, but it's not our fault. And we can grow together and we can change these systems together. Yes, I love that. So I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked all of my guests at the end of our conversations together. And that's really, what is your dream for the future of education, looking through the lens of the things that we've talked about today? My dream for the future of education is a place where teachers, school social workers, administrators, everyone is treated like whole human beings and has enough workers' rights and room for expressing their emotions and advocating for themselves 
that they can listen to their bodies and lead with their values, both in the classroom and in school leadership. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be a great world? Yes. That's that's the dream. (laughs) That is the dream. I love that. So for those people who are listening, how do they get in touch with you or learn more about you and your work? I am a researcher and personal development coach in Austin, Texas, but I work with folks all over the world on healing unhealthy coping skills. And you can find me at theexistentialcoach.com. I'm also the existential coach on Instagram. And I love talking to people. I love talking about this work. I love talking about the intersection of wellness and social justice. So please reach out to me. That's fantastic. And all of those links will be right there in the program notes. It'll be super easy for people to get to know you and your work. So thank you so much, Abby, for your time and your talents today. This has been a really fantastic and important conversation. Thank you, Jen, for having this conversation with me. This has been great. Yes. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and a nice comment. And we will see you next time on Take Notes. Incredible, right? Together, we can revolutionize the face of education. It's all possible. And it's all here for you right now. Let's keep the conversation going at Empowered Educator Faculty Room on Facebook.